Right. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Antifada. This is Sean KB. We have a full house tonight. Jamie and Andy are both here. What's up, guys? Oh, you know, chilling, talking about populism, <laughs> thinking. Andy? Nothing. <laughs> we got nothing from Andy. <laughs> he just looked over at me and shook his head. Well, that's great. Uh, we, In addition to co-hosts, we also have a great guest today. We have Anton Yeager. He's a uh, writer on populism and a postdoctoral fellow at Cambridge University. Anton, hello. Hello, hello. How's everyone? Doing pretty good. Andy brought me some uh, vegan, what is it, vegan lox cream cheese spread. And I'm going to try it after the show, I think, because I'm not sure. I'm a little dubious about it. We have to wrap this up very quickly if you have that waiting for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm just ch- champing at the bit in order to try that out. I'm sure it's actually really good. I could do a uh, bonus episode on it, perhaps, like a review. Um, yeah. Anton, uh, you write about populism. Populism is um, was all over the place. People talking especially about left populism. And this moment of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn up until the um, ruthless defeat of both of them at the hands of their respective parties. Um, Owned. Yeah, completely owned. owned. So this is the conversation we're going to have today is maybe a little different, I'd say, than the one we had a couple years ago. Right. Um, Populism. uh, Let's let's start out with um, what is give us a definition of populism. It's a very slippery word. It's it's um, it's really hard to pin down, similar to something like fascism. Right. Which has a ton of different divergent definitions that people argue about. So what is populism? Really good, but very difficult question. I think the easiest way to define it is the way that political scientists do it, which is quite boring, but also quite useful, is that it's best conceptualized as a as a kind of politics that just centers the people as its subject so it has the people as this kind of central actor not only of history but also as the central subject of what they consider legitimacy and that people is often opposed to elite to an elite um and then actually this is the kind of positive definition of populism you can give but then the most useful way to actually tease out what populism is is just by considering it in contrast so of course the easiest and the most conventional way this is done is by contrasting populism to liberalism so far as liberalism does not tend to have the people as a central subject has quite a different relationship to procedures and to state power as such and also doesn't have the same view of popular sovereignty as populism does. But then the most interesting contrast for us, I think, is between populism and Marxism or variants of socialism and and communism, where populism has an uneasy relationship to class. So it's not like it doesn't have a theory of class, but it doesn't tend to think in terms of classes the way that socialists and communists tend to do. And its theory of history, but even its theory of society is just far less materialist and centers the people as a kind of subject of legitimacy, but doesn't necessarily have a very rigorous, a very wide ranging account of political economy uh, to accompany it. And at the same time, that sounds like a very critical um, or almost like a dismissal of what populism is. But I think it's very important to take into account that populism has been a sort of endemic feature of a lot of modern politics in general, and certainly has a relationship to capitalism, which is very, very complicated, but also quite intimate. And certainly from the left, even if you're critical on populism, it's very, very important you have a good understanding of it, because it taps into very, very powerful tendencies at the heart of our societies. 
Yeah. Yeah. Reading reading through your work, it seems very clear to me that um, populism is both at once uh, a result of the unlinking of uh, politics from class and from the you know the material base that runs society and the basic class categories that we as Marxists understand kind of move history along. Um, but it's also very much a result of this uh, phase of capitalism where everyone's so atomized and uh, disconnected from one another. And uh, I mean, I guess this goes back, right? Because Marx was writing about <laughs> the peasants as potatoes in a sack, not connected by any real social bonds, far, far, far before neoliberalism was even a thing. But it, can, can you talk about that sort of uh, that back and forth a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think this is a perfect way to summarize it. The, f the first is to say, what are the kind of sociological preconditions for populism to become so successful? And it's clear that what you said, it is because of the erosion of these classical group identities or group categories, sort of organized mass politics across the 20th century, um, which divided people into all kinds of sociological brackets. And once those brackets start to erode, a, pub, a subject like the people just becomes a more probable subject for history, uh, for history, but also for politics in general. So these are the kind of sociological preconditions. But then there's also just a general fact that modern democracy still silently relies on a form of what called popular approval, so far as capitalist societies are mostly democratic in, in the form that they allow for an unprecedented expansion of suffrage across the producing population, which was not possible in previous class societies. But at the same time, of course, this promise of popular sovereignty can never fully be fulfilled because of the essential heteronomy that is still exists in a capitalist economy. Mm. And in that sense, populism is both what you could call a product of disorganization, as far as it expresses a sort of incapacity for class categories to fully crystallize themselves, while at the same time, it's also just like an essential feature of how modern democracies interlink and function with capitalism as such. Like like a concept like the people is so vague, right? Like that could include literally everyone because everyone's a person. In, right. I'm like, who are the people really? Is it does it include the, the workers? Does it include the petty bourgeois? And uh, the answer of populism generally is yes. Well, it's the 99 percent. Right. I mean, the, we had an incredible populist moment over the last 10 years. Um, this kind of the first reaction, at least in the United States, uh, to the financial crisis, to this vast um, you know, a, a downturn in the economy and millions of people losing their homes was the Occupy movement, uh, which was very much a left populist one. So what do you think? What do you think about the 99%? Is that the same as the people? Um, I think it's not exactly the same, but it's on the same spectrum in many ways, insofar as it's a logical expression of a society in which those big organized mass organizations simply were not available mm. as actors or did not arise out of the situation in 2008. And it's in, it's in that case that populism is just a logical outcome of what social agitation looks like in an era of atomization and in an era of disorganization. And you can be critical of it and say it's not good enough, but you have to understand it as a logical outcome of these kind of processes. So yes, it's insufficient uh, to simply say populism is wrong. It arises kind of imminent from uh, society. And it's also a, a historical movement as well. A lot of your work, Anton, uh, is trying to connect uh, early 20th century populism to the populism of today. So talk a little bit about the distinctions between these uh, in the United States and elsewhere, and also what's similar. 
Yeah, definitely. So one of the basic similarities is that they're both populist moments insofar as they both use the uh, subject of the people as their central uh, agent of politics. And at the same time, the word populism is just everywhere. Then there is the sort of broader socioeconomic similarity we find in notions such as the first and the second Gilded Age. So the first Gilded Age, which ran from the 1870s until the 1910s, and then today it's supposed to start in the 1970s and runs into the 2020s. There are some interesting similarities, I say, insofar as it's very people-centric politics. They both agitate in the name of the people. But at the same time, American populism also represented this very unique attempt to um, organize a large part of the American farming population in the late 19th century amidst of this massive agricultural depression that was overtaking the world economy at the time. And American populism actually tried to counteract the disorganization that was intrinsic to a large part of the farming population, mainly in the South at the time. So this is a pre-Jim Crow South, but a post-Reconstruction South. So they haven't been able to expropriate the Southern landowners, but at the same time, this racist apartheid system is not fully in place yet. And mainly in the 1880s and 1890s, this leads to some very unique experiments in biracial organizing and a massive, massive threat to the biparty system in the 1890s when uh, the populists actually decide to form their own American uh, party that competes in elections that then provides all of the organizational basis for the socialist movement in the early 20th century. Of all the stuff you've uh, you've written, I really recommend that listeners check out your article in in Jacobin about the history of uh, American populism, because it's it's a common uh, rhetoric that there was this this populist movement that was kind of wing nutty and racist and white chauvinist and that this article really shows the the dynamism of it. Uh, even talk, talking about certain individual politicians who went from, uh, you know, different wings of it over time. Yeah, and UGV Debs is a perfect example of the complexity and the ambiguities, but also the promises of that original American populism. Insofar as in the 1880s, when he's still a unionist, he actually becomes a very, very fervent supporter of the populist coalition. He actually supports the presidential candidates in the 1890s. And then it's only when he enters into prison after Pullman in the 1890s that he actually lets go of his populist faith. He reads Kautsky and Marx in prison, of course, this famous conversion. And it's then that he moves from an analysis of popular sovereignty to fully fledged political economy, which turns him into what you could call an American second international Marxist at the time. Um, but there is still a sort of populist core to a lot of Debs' politics, even throughout the early 20th century. And if you actually look at the electoral map, where the Socialist Party does best when Debs runs on their platform, a lot of them are former rural populist strongholds. So. There are a lot of populists then who, after the defeat, come to defend the Jim Crow order and who become a sort of yeah, defenders of landlord after the complete uh, destruction of that sharecropper tenant alliance in the 1890s. But there are also a lot of populists who transition into the American Socialist Party and then who mainly link up with European Jews to form what was basically the only big uh, socialist party that the United States ever had. That's so interesting because, okay. People talk about right and left wing populism today like they're just completely their phenomenon completely unconnected to one another. Right. Like I I think partly because right wing populism and the Republican Party have become so fully identified with one another. Like uh, I've spoken to liberals who are like, 
Well, there's no such thing as right wing populism because these people aren't really populists because they're supporting uh, Republican policies, which generally involve uh, bad rules for labor and uh, regressive taxation and uh, racism, basically. Uh, but like what what is is there a connection there? Like I know there's people like have made a big industry of you know, consulting on how to beat back populism from the left and the right. You see uh, neoliberal ideologues basically painting Trump and Bernie Sanders with the same brush. And we obviously know that that's uh, that's bullshit. But like what what is the connection there? Is there more uh, is there more uh, of a permeable membrane than people might uh, think? I think there are two ways of approaching these questions. The first is an essentially rhetorical one where you, you look at not what people do necessarily, but what they say and what kind of, I mean, to, to use a fancy term also in those discussions, what kind of discourse they're espousing, which supposedly indicates a degree of populism. And there, despite all the bad faith, I think there is some truth maybe to the idea that Trump and Sanders shared like a sort of common anti-elitist discourse in common, which could allow them to both be sorted into the populist camp. But what this relies upon is an essential thinning out or a sort of reduction of what populism the original American context meant, namely to a purely rhetorical style. So you basically just turn it into a style which any politician across the spectrum can deploy to get electoral scoring points. Or if you actually look at the concrete American history, populism was actually much more than a style. It was a very concrete program. Mm. It was a sort of developmental plan for the American economy in the late 19th century. We tried to link up different sectors, not only of the proletarian industrial population, but also parts of the American farming class, both black and white. And if you decide to call both Trump and Bernie a populist, you're basically accepting this rhetorical thinning out of what was once a very vibrant, although ambiguous American tradition. What I will say is that there is a continuity between what we now call right-wing populism and late 19th century populism insofar as a large part of original populism was still an attempt to update what you call a sort of yeoman Jeffersonian tradition mm -hmm. to the age of an essentially corporate capitalism. And one of the most daring attempts they did was to integrate all these farmers into cooperatives and into mass parties, which transcend this kind of individualist uh, landed imaginary. But in many ways, because they failed to take on the, the party system, they switched back to this Jeffersonian position, which was essentially a defense of smallholdership and therefore property at all costs, which lends itself to all kinds of racist and extremely exclusionary uh, ideologies. And it is true that if you look at Republican ideology in the 1970s or 1980s, or you even look at the Reagan revolution, a lot of these smallholder yeoman themes still crop up across the spectrum. And part of that cultural staying power has to do with the fact that populism has left this residue. The only difference is that populism actually constructed the American fiscal state and was hugely important for bringing all these redistributive measures in what was at the time not a generous welfare state at all. But at the same time, you can see that the rhetorical similarity explains why even politicians on the right can like activate this populist reservoir even when the programs are so at odds. So you had a program and you had a mass of people and you had institutions that were being created and you had actual effect on the ground in American society and politics and the economy a hundred years ago. So is right populism or populism in general today just LARPing? Because it doesn't seem like either on the left or on the right, there are really strong organizations being built right now or any kind of forward-looking plan 
uh, besides this callback to a sort of nationalism or producerism on the right or a kind of replay of uh, the New Deal or the Great Society on the left? Yeah, I, f- I think if I'm being honest, it is LARPing, but there's always a question with LARPing so far as why does the LARPing work? Or like, what is the sort of, what is the cultural background or cultural le- legacy that's being activated here? And I think a lot of politicians on the right don't deserve the name populist because they disagree on questions of fiscal state capacity. I mean, populists were immensely redistributive, were in favor of labor and union rights, um, were actually very, very key to some of those legal innovations in the early 20th century that created some legal breathing space for American unions to function. While at the same time, populism retained that very, very strong dedication to private property, even though it was small private property, it was still private property. And this makes it possible for these politicians to LARP, but also, for example, what you see with post-war suburbanization or the really, really rigid persistence of these homeowner ideologies in American Mm -hmm. history also go back to the fact that populism was never fully able to transcend that imaginary centered around private property. One of the people who did it was Eugene V. Debs, precisely because he saw that this defense of uh, farmers' private property would in the end still lead to patterns of proletarianization, which would undo that smallholder ideal. But a lot of other populists simply were never able to transcend that kind of private property ideal. And I think this is where, yes, it's LARPing, but at the same time, LARPing also works for specific historic reason. Mm, very interesting. Um, so producerism is a strain that runs through everything. Producerism um, posits that you have the people who create stuff. You have the people who create uh, value, I guess we would call it. You have the people, uh, everyone from farmers to, to uh, bankers to workers on the one hand, and then you have a corrupt elite that's par- basically parasitic on the other, like international finance and stuff like that. Talk a little bit about producerism and how it's been it's been able to survive over the last 130 years what are the contradictions that brings that about i think this is where the contrast between march and political economy and populism really becomes most clear and the first thing i'll say is what are we talking about producer in a sort of abstract global sense because a global history producer brings all kinds of national varieties into the equation but if you look at american producerism in the 19th century it's so omnipresent it's like a sort of republican ideology that runs across party lines and a producer has wildly different definitions for every political movement that existed across the 19th century and so the boundaries of where of, of where you demarcate a producer can differ very very widely um, so you can have a heavily racialized ideal of producerism, which mm-hmm. implies that all white workers and white slave owners and white factory owners have to unite against the sort of black underclass and, for example, a Jewish parasitic finance class. But then you also have more socialist or even laborist ideals of producerism, which claim that, no, the ideal is actually far more exclusive. It only applies to wage-dependent workers. And there you could still say that as a analysis of political economy, it come short insofar as it doesn't realize how the production of concrete wealth, as they say, also reproduces value and thereby constitutes these kind of heteronomous or unfree systems of um, of economic domination. But at the same time, producerism is not just a moral claim. It is also a claim about how you want an economy or how you want production mm. to be structured. And therefore, you can say, yes, it's exclusionary. It's bad political economy. It misunderstands the point of the whole marching critique of value. But at the same time, the key of producerism has always been a claim about political legitimacy and say, like, what do we actually want? 
to do with production. And of course, there's a Nazi version of this, which is like yes. we'll expropriate all of the Jews and then we'll nationalize the factories and create a sort of racial welfare state. But then Eugene V. Debs, even though he was no longer a populist in the 1900s, still remained a producerist insofar as he thought that political power should go to his very specific class of producers, which were industrial wage workers, and they should initiate a social revolution which would actually center complete autonomous control over production. And I think that's a slightly different producerism from the more exclusionary racial variants we discussed before. Mm. Um, how about nationalism? <laughs> because um, I think, you know, producerism on the one hand is, a, is an argument about uh, uh, political economy and about political legitimacy. But nationalism, especially, you know, in the last 10, 12 years or so, has really uh, shocked, I think, the, the moderate center. And I'm thinking specifically about uh, Brexit. And I'm thinking specifically mm. on the, the Catalonian uh, attempts uh, I'm not sure that that's right wing, but part of this populism is nationalism. So can you unpack what the nation state does for these these claims of populists, I guess, on the right, but also on the left? Yeah, let's not forget all of the big left populists are also nationalists right. in this day and age. People don't like to think about it or whenever I bring it up, they're like, oh, Jamie, you and your crazy communist takes that you try to shoehorn into everything. But like. No, like I think there is something important to be talked about that um, all of these, you know, relatively progressive reforms are still being done within a, a national context and within a context of um, making our economy, whoever we are, whether we're talking about America, whether we're talking about um, Mexico, right? Because AMLO is uh, a real left populist and nationalist there. Um, making the economy competitive on the global marketplace, just minus the, um, you know, minus the racism, minus the especially cruel border regimes uh, advocated by the right. Yeah, I, I think those are all very, very good points, but I think there's there's three, there's sort of three questions I, I would think about. The first is if you look at the original American populist, um, it's not clear they were intrinsically nationalist, but it's just that they operate in a sort of national political space, which even hold for Debs, insofar as Debs remained a supporter of a sort of national revolutionary Republican tradition uh, for his entire life, which was this kind of inevitable matrix in which he operated. If we look at left populism mainly in the last 10 years, the nationalist dimension of that, I think, has to do with two things. The first is that the way globalization played out since the 1990s or the sort of second capitalist globalization of the 1990s is often presented as this supersession or this transcendent of the nation state insofar as you have all these international or even supranational institutions that supposedly lord over these national states and that set out the rules of the game for global capital accumulation. But even if you look at the European Union or you look at the US in the 1990s, 90s or the construction of something like the WTO, the actual driving agent of the insulation of capitalism from democracy, which is basically the neoliberal project, was always driven by national states. So globalization is not something external that imposes itself on these innocent nation states. It's actually nation states that are facing internal class tensions that then look for external binds to put on their own population so they don't have to satisfy all these welfareist or redistributive demands. And I think this is a key dimension to understanding the contemporary nationalism insofar as so much politics still happens on the national level. 
the source of legitimacy for so many politicians is still a national people. Insofar as if you even look at something like the European uh, football championship, people get to keep their national football team. There is no European football team that competes against like other continental players. <laughs> that would While be a very small time, and boring league. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or with, even with the Super League. So the national remains immensely important for how people experience politics, while at the same time nation states have like self-imposed all these limits on uh, their capacity to actually coerce capital on that level. And I think this is what calls for these nationalists, or this is the real pathology that that's at the heart of the current nationalism, is precisely that the promise of popular sovereignty still lies within a national sphere, but nation states can absolutely not fulfill this promise, certainly when it comes to economics. And I think this is unfortunately also terrain that left populism has inherited, insofar as the disorganization of these organizations happens on a national scale. And then a lot of people think, well, the reconstruction of these organizations also has to happen on a national scale. So if you look at something like Podemos in Spain, it is simply impossible for them to win a majority in something like a European Parliament, partly because of parity rules, et cetera, et cetera, but also because the European Parliament is actually a pretty useless and helpless organ compared to what is called these intergovernmental organs, which are basically just congregations of national states. And then the Podemos conclusion is to say, well, we'll first try to do something on the national level, and then maybe we can think of doing something on the supranational later. But of course, this has a kind of intrinsic logic to it where you start out on the national level and you get stuck on the national level as we saw with Syriza insofar as there is no capacity to do anything beyond the national once you've actually locked yourself into that circuit. Yeah, I mean, Syriza is kind of the classic example we always bring up of, hey, maybe we got to do more than just um, have left populists win elections <laughs> in our country because uh, the, a lot of these problems are overdetermined. A lot of these problems are larger than the national context. And of course, Syriza wasn't going to be able to stand up to these larger geopolitical economic forces, like no matter how good they were going. And a lot of these people were good Marxists, like no matter how, uh, what kind of individual metal they have, uh, they're not going to be able to stand up to these larger economic forces. They're going to become the administrators of austerity and the people who voted for them are going to turn against them. I think, yeah, the, sorry to jump yeah, in, ahead, but sorry, I, sorry. I think the, um, the Syriza story is even more depressing than that because you had in Greece, uh, after the financial crisis, you had a very activated working class and you had a very restive um, population that was doing all sorts of acts of resistance, you know, from tax resistance to uh, massive street protests. You had um, the squares movement where people were organizing themselves together in public and you had massive general strikes, general strikes that rolled one after another, after another, after another. And even at the end of that, in this national context, in this uh, international context, as they're fighting against the Troika, uh, when the Syriza government, there was a referendum and the people voted no to accept a really bad deal from the Troika, Syriza went in there saying that they were going to you know, follow the referendum and fight for the people and, and stick it to Merkel. The people voted no on the referendum and Syriza did it anyways. So it, 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 the, what Syriza seemed like to people was not just the failure of left populism, but a massive betrayal, actually, of what the people of Greece had actually fought for, not just politically, but also on the ground. 
And there's a question of organizational duress here insofar as Syriza was able to gather a lot of these sort of more disparate movements that arose out of the 2008 moment, which was really one of the most severe economic crises in, in Europe in, in 80 years. It was like a contraction of GDP by 5% over a couple of years, which is absolutely spectacular. But at the same time, it was precisely Syriza's left populism, which made it impossible for them to think through some of these key questions of political economy, yeah. insofar as they said, well, we can hold a referendum, we, th we can like gather all kinds of national enthusiasm for it, but then there is simply no plan as to how, for example, the Eurozone might be reformed or a new kind of European Union might be created. And if that is not possible or is not on the menu, what an exit would actually look like at that point. And it's here, for example, that the blindness or the sort of willful naivete vis-a-vis some of these questions of political economy actually comes to ail left populism. But at the same time, the national dimension, again, is important insofar as we have, we don't have to underestimate just how how integrated so many of these working classes in comparison to the 20th century have become international states. And this is, for example, a point that people often point out in difference to the 1930s, which is sort of previous fascist era, is that we live in an area in which a lot of working classes are nationally oriented, while it's mainly the middle classes that are internationally oriented, while in mm. the 1930s, it was exactly the other way around. Oh, interesting. So the working classes were internationally oriented, while the middle classes were actually the class that was more strongly attached to national states. And in the age of deindustrialization, that balance has actually uh, flipped almost. Hmm. What are the consequences of that flip? Well, it means that the terrain of the left or what the left ends up defending is precisely working class gains that have been won on a national level, which, as I said, lock you in to this logic of politics that makes it very, very difficult for you to actually link up internationally with other movements at the time. So Syriza, for example, hoped that Die Linke would have won elections in Germany at a certain point, but you're looking at sort of different electoral cycles, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, what you end up doing is just the defense of national capital against German export capital. But of course, if national capital actually decides to exit the Eurozone, you either have to go look for Chinese loans and the Chinese are will, not willing to antagonize Germany because they have all kinds of other export interests involved, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, you, yeah, you're, you're completely stuck between a rock and a hard place for that. Uh, I've been listening to all of these problems with left populist political parties, with uh, just even doing politics in general on that level. It, it's easy to be like, well, what the fuck else are we supposed to do? A global proletarian revolution that abolishes the value form? But, you know, the more and more I learn about this stuff, the more I'm like, yeah, I mean, that really is the only way to resolve like all of these problems that are just like giving me a headache even thinking about them. But I it's, get it why people would be like, well, that's not a realistic option. We have to keep doing Syriza. I, I think one of the valuable conclusions we can have after 10 years of left populist experimenting is firstly a sort of hard-nosed dose of realism insofar as we can see just how hostile and how difficult the terrain is that has been constructed for us, not by us, but for us. At the same time, it's pretty much 
you don't know how steep the mountain is. You don't really have a sense of how long it's going to take. And in the last 10 years, people have been trying to do the first 100 meters of like a kilometer long trek. And you realize that a lot of people are absolutely not prepared for that trek and they were not able to get very far. But at least people got a sense of how steep it is. So this is, I think, the historic or the sort of uh, utilitarian value of the less populist experiment is that it shows just how badly the odds are and how steep the climb will be if you actually want to attain something in a 21st century context as a socialist and as a communist even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing about global proletarian revolution is that it's really, really hard. But <laughs> is it harder than uh, creating any kind of progressive reform to our political economy within this context that has been built for us? And I think the answer is no. Um, I mean, let's stay on this for a second. Um, I couldn't help noticing that right-wing populist parties are doing a lot better around the world than anything that could pass for a left populist movement. Um, the Bernies and Corbins of the world, they keep getting owned over and over and over again. Um, and you talked a little bit about why that is, um, the kind of the coalition of young professionals and aging blue collar workers that left populist parties are trying to assemble. Um, they don't always hold together very well. Uh, does this keep falling apart? Because as some people say, uh, the youngs are just too woke and they're like alienating <laughs> the workers. Or is there another larger reason why these left populists keep doing so poorly? Yeah, I, I think they didn't do that poorly. I don't want to like underestimate just how um, just how badly they've done or they, they in the end they failed miserably. But at the same time, you just waged this attempt in the first place, I think was an interesting experiment. Mm. I think it is a mistake to present this as a culture war issue, because this is obviously the way the right likes to frame this debate is that you have all these old boomers uh, out of industrial jobs who are now stuck in a low wage service economy. And then you have all these young millennials who are very digitally networked, who are all terminally online, who have a different woke value set. And these people just don't get along because uh, because of these cultures culture war issues. That, that might be part of it in some ways. There's definitely a degree of mutual alienation happening between these two voter blocks. But it's far more satisfying to actually find materialist explanations for these differences. The first is simply that one of the ways that deindustrialization and the general fall in the profit rate in the 1980s and 1990s was counteracted in most of these left populist cases, so even in Britain, but also in the United States, but this even holds for Spain and for Italy, is by the creation of this massive homeowner class. So you had expansion of credit facilities, the capacity to get in foreign capital, which makes it possible to pour all kinds of money into a housing boom and basically turn what they said in Spain, a nation of proletarians into a nation of homeowners. And homeownership is not a sort of perfect antidote against class voting, but it does make a lot of people, as we know, it intensely careful when they make political calculations of risk. Um, insofar as they don't necessarily vote conservative, but the kind of risks they have to take um, when they're voting are be become much, much higher than in other cases. And it simply doesn't hold for millennials, partly because millennials will never get on that homeowner ladder or partly because they're still waiting for their inheritance um, to seep through. Right, until their parents and it's precisely die. this combination or this conjugation between these two blocks that is very, very difficult to do for left populists, which you clearly saw with Corbyn as well. And your... Um and your your article for Catalyst, which really goes in in depth and into your analysis of uh, of populism, uh, left and right and and uh, apolitical, 
Um, you, you mentioned at the end that uh, Corbynism attempted to um, recreate some of the social bonds necessary for a real leftist mass political movement from above. And, and you seemed optimistic that that kind of uh, like reshuffling the deck of, of society was possible. Uh, how did Corbynism try to do that? And, and uh, I mean, is that something you think uh, like Sanders or the squad could do? In, in the case of Corbynism, and I think this is a cautionary tale, even if we talk about the squad now, there are two planes on which you try to recreate some of the coordinates of 20th century mass politics. The first attempt was to get a parliamentary majority and liberalize or lessen trade union laws. For example, it's immensely difficult to organize strikes in the United Kingdom, certainly after Thatcher. It's immensely difficult to unionize certain sectors. And if you get a parliamentary majority in the House of Commons, there are basically no constitutional restrictions on what kind of laws you can introduce. And this is the kind of reform from above that would allow people to associate and to organize on a basis which could then create a feedback loop with the party insofar as if more people are in unions, more people have a sense of their interest. If they have a better sense of their interest, maybe they'll vote for specific programs, et cetera, et cetera. Huh. The and Mike Ballyhood non-reformist reforms. Well, yeah, this is how it was sold. So this is one of the from above tactics. The other attempt was the digital party to say, like, we can't go back to these big mass parties of the 20th century, but we can try and link up people through this new social technology that's been offered, which is the Internet. But as we look at Corbynism now, it didn't get a parliamentary majority. And if you look at momentum, it's not clear that these digital parties actually offer the same degree of cohesion or even the same degree of durability as 20th century mass parties will ever do. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that class would be enough to, like, create some kind of sense of shared interests, linked fates. But it seems, at least pessimistically, it seems to me, like that's not working nearly as well uh, on the left as uh, race is on the right, right? Because, like some people have said, whiteness is a substantial enough social bond to turn these right-wing movements um, from internet memes to a legitimate social movement with the power to do things in the real world. And judging from what's been happening in the news the past few years, um, that seems kind of possible. Do you, do you agree with that analysis? What I will say about right-wing populism is that its threshold of success is much, much lower than left populism. So whatever we might say about reformism or about social democracy reconfigured through less populism, its attempt to actually take on parts of a very, very victorious 21st century capitalist class means it has a much higher threshold of what counts as success than right-wing populists. Because even if you look at someone like Matteo Salvini in Italy, who often counts as the most successful of right-wing populists, he once started his political career, or he evolved into his political career as someone who was going to take Italy out of the euro, get it out of stagnation, stop all kinds of migrants entering, uh, completely rewrite the cultural career curriculum of the country, but he has basically downgraded on so many of these promises simply because the Italian capital does not want it, neither does German capital, etc., etc. But it, this doesn't actually disfavor his political chances in any way, because that's not what it, why he's in politics. He can keep on culture warring, he can keep on stirring up all kinds of nativist sentiment in Italy, and he will still get him votes, because that's what his voting bloc is interested in. For left populists, of course, if you don't win an election and you're not able to, whatever, liberalize trade unions, law or actually introduce some welfare measures, 
it, you will be a failure and your threshold for what is failure is unfortunately much, much more likely than it is for the right wing populist. What's, That's really important yeah. to understand, right? Like right wing populists are not actually acting against the system in any meaningful way. Whereas, you know, for the most part, left wing populists are, even though some of them may or may not be socialists or communists. No, definitely. No, I think this is this is the key difference. But then on sorry to get back on your question about class, I think the attempt to use class as a sort of unifier for left populism was always going to prove difficult, partly because the experience of class has been so culturally fragmented in the post-industrial economy. We live in this paradoxical world in which we have a fully proletarianized planet for the first time, mm -hmm. but still the kind of internal divisions in the wage-dependent class have are just simply massive, not only on ethnic lines, but also on this kind of homeowner or credit related, um, credit related differences, et cetera, et cetera. And this means that if you have a great degree of disorganization, people don't have a cultural identification with class, the class experience is fragmented. And at the same time, the people is just a far easier unifier if you actually want to get a voting block together. But at the same time, that also holds the danger that you won't actually be doing any proper political economy because the people precisely lacks that kind of materialist basis that a concept such as Klaus does. Interesting. What do you um, what do you make of Trumpism? Is that a form of populism? Again, I think rhetorically it taps into very powerful currents in American political thought in general. I think part of the producerism, even though Trump's own progeny within sort of lump and real estate <laughs> capital in New York makes it difficult to sell him as a producer. At the same time, people like Bannon often try to use Trump as this kind of populist savior to try to infuse a degree of ideology where actually Trump was not hospital to that ideological charge at all. But I do think Trump had a producerist edge, there was a slight populist edge and that he did often talk about the people as such. And he shares this sort of low threshold of success with these right-wing populists insofar as he's speaking for a specific section of American capital that was very, very dissatisfied with the globalist arrangement of the 1990s, such as, for example, the steel industry, et cetera, et cetera. But as a whole, he's caused a very, very sensitive shift in American policy, but it's not like there was ever a full-on assault on the capitalist class as such. So in that sense, his populism was always exclusively rhetorical. I'm um, looking at a meme right now, and it's an epic SpongeBob. The caption says, Keynesian social democracy isn't happening a second time. Uh, I think it's really funny because um, so much of the left populist imaginary is again looking backwards uh, towards a different time, trying to reconstruct a coalition that existed in, from the 1930s till about the 1960s or 70s, and understanding the role of the left um, to to implement these in whatever terrain is possible. So, talk a little bit about this backwards looking on the on the populist left in terms of policy and in terms of organizing. Yeah, I mean, so much of the left populist political program was recharged Keynesianism right. um, in an age in which Keynesianism was finding some inroads again in the ruling class on some levels. So, for example, with the QE or quantitative eking programs after 2008, there were these policy openings that made Keynesianism seem more probable. So, yeah, but then the main problems with this is firstly, 
does it make sense first to describe the post-war compromise as a p- compromise and does it make sense to actually describe it as Keynesian? Mm. Um, and the very notion of a compromise itself presupposes confrontation. So you can only reach a compromise once there has been an act of confrontation. And this is a big point that people often make about the 50s and 60s, not only in the United States, but also in Belgium, is they were hardly a time of class peace. Uh, you have these massive strikes in the United States. You have the biggest strike of the century in Belgium, for example, 1960, 1961. And it seems very, very weird when people talk about those glorious 30 post-war years that brought everyone prosperity in which capital and labor could agree on how the pie was divided and how the economy was run, when what was actually happening is that capital and labor were at each other's throats for most of the period. It's just that precisely this confrontation made possible certain material gains that weren't available before. And if left populism said, well, we can do that Keynesian epoch again without the massive class confrontation and without the industrial economy that was in place then, then you're basically missing out on two of the essential prerequisites of what those post-war period what the post-war period actually represented. And it's a kind of uh, what they call um, in Lewis Carroll, it's a kind of grin without a cat. Yeah. So far as you want the grin, but you can't actually have the cat. So you have a completely decontextualized version of what Keynesianism actually meant as a mode of social contestation. Yeah, it really seems like a fetishization of the policy without any understanding of the politics that led to the policy. And this is an argument I've gotten in you know, time and again with left liberals in this day and age who think that you can sort of do social democracy in a, in a top-down technocratic way. This is pretty much what people have hoped from Biden, right? Insofar Mm -hmm. as Biden had massive turnout at the election, but it was not the outcome of a sort of massive mobilizational wave. But now they're basically doing sort of delayed American social democracy from above. Um, So I think when it comes to the optics, they might be able to sell it. But when you look at the concrete formula of the program, it is not quite what social democracy is. It's basically a lot of Friedmanite cash transfers, uh, and then it's a sort of massive expansion of a subcontractor state, which basically what they say asset recycles um, all these public um, all these public services. So it is a break with neoliberalism, or it's certainly a break with austerity on a certain level. But at the same time, it's not necessarily a very stark break with some of the more market-friendly forms of welfare or industrial policy we know from the 1990s and the 2000s. So I think something has ended, but it's not clear that, to use that awful phrase by Gramsci, uh, anything new is being born. (laughs) (laughs) So American society, American politics, uh, American empire is riddled with all of these contradictions. And at the heart of it, I think, is a deep decay of kind of the gains that were won in the 20th century and also the sort of economic possibilities that exist for American capitalism uh, in this late, late date. So what's frustrating about this moment in time, and populism is important to talk about for this reason, what's, what's tough right now is that so much change is necessary and there's so much uh, contradiction and so many social forces kind of like bumping up against one another and, let, and yet nothing is happening. Like... Does something have to happen? <laughs> We're in a situation where you know inequality is rising, where American power is declining, where China's rising, and yet we continue to have this largely depoliticized population, and the people who are politicized tend to just um, you know aggregate themselves in one political party or another as if it's a tribe. Like when something has to break, right? 
Yes, but there are, I think, good and bad versions of, of that argument insofar as you can take it into an apocalyptic di uh, direction and say we need to wait for this purely external factor that will shake everything up. But I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think there is much evidence to see that that will actually create this massive politicization. Um, I think one of the big traumas for the left with the COVID crisis is that you have unprecedented mass death, um, a sort of complete exposure of state incapacity and of rampant rampant inequality through upward redistribution but it's not like it's proven a very very politicizing experience for loads of people mm -hmm. i mean in, the injustice is just glaring but precisely because of the demobilization of the lockdowns people feel even more downtrodden and feel even more demoralized to actually take on these political projects and i think a more valuable method might simply be to think through populism as an attempt to do politics in a world without politics. So it's basically a form of post-political politics in that the classical mechanisms of the classical mass parties that weren't available in the, 19th, in the 20th century are simply gone. What does it mean to do politics on that level? But if you think through the contradictions of populism, you think through the contradictions of a time without politics, and then you can actually reflect not only in the depth of the defeat, but also think through the conditions of what a reconstruction might actually look like. Um, and I think something like COVID, but also the impending climate catastrophe should actually bode ill against the idea that you need some kind of external catastrophe to shake people into consciousness um, yeah. on that level. Oh, God, that's so depressing. But, you know, probably true. Um, <laughs> so we like to talk here at the Antifada about not just the problems, but the solutions. Um, we're all communists here, so we know that that is what we need to do uh, in the end to unfuck the world. Um, but there have been a lot of arguments on the socialist and even communist left about the viability of left populist politics as part of the socialist project. Um, the one that I'm the most familiar with, the debate that I'm the most familiar with, of course, was um, the DSA debating whether or not to endorse and participate in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, do you think left populism has a place in the project of building socialism or even communism, or do we need to look elsewhere? Um, I will I will here say that I'm a sort of anti anti populist and as Todd put it forward. So I am far more sympathetic or generous towards pop populism as a discovery procedure, because whatever you say about Bernie, whatever you say about Corbyn or even Podemos, they failed at their initial political ambitions, they weren't able to actually realize them. But at the same time, they did reveal some parts of the political terrain and the situation we find ourselves in, insofar as, for example, with Bernie, we see this in loads of uh, polling, we see this in some of the election turnout, there is massive, massive dissatisfaction with the medical system in the United States. Um, this is a possibility one which you can construct a coalition. What would it actually mean to begin politics as square one with this kind of coalition in mind? And the only thing that Bernie did was to show, look, there is this issue around which you could organize quite a lot of people. If you actually get free healthcare in the United States, that's obviously not nearly anything as revolutionary as you want to see 
of which we have seen in the 20th century. But at least you need to ask yourself the question, where the fuck do we start? Like, where is the actual stepping stone we have available for us? And left populism is valuable as a discovery procedure to see, okay, what openings are available for us? And once we enter into those openings, are they just dead ends or is there any way to go for it? And a lot of communists can say, well, this is just a useless endeavor because we know where reformism ends up. But at the same time, it's it's not like their hypothesis appears even more probable when they look at their options. This- yeah, that is a wall that I have been bashing my head into over and over again, I must say. You mentioned uh, Eugene Debs a bunch earlier when you were talking about the, the previous populist movement in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, is, is, is that an example of where you see um, a, a historical transition from sort of a, a people versus the elite type of politics and movement into uh, a sort of international and socialist one? Is, is, that, is that something we should look for on the horizon, that transition? Oh, I think Debs is definitely a perfect example of a very interesting and productive transition from populism into socialism. So what Debs sees in populism is the true heir of a sort of American bourgeois revolutionary tradition, which still has a defense of private property, which he later finds problematic, but which he still espouses in the late 19th century. It's only in the 20th century that he realized that socialism is actually the only way to historically realize the promises of that American bourgeois revolution tradition. And he sees that populism is actually stuck in a sort of doom loop of that tradition and can't escape its own its own contradictions. While he says socialism actually realizes that the bourgeois revolution leads to this industrial revolution, which creates a class of uh, landless proletarians. And if you want to rationalize the economy, you will have to have a social revolution to actually complete your political revolution. The issue today is, of course, that so many of the coordinates of Debs' thinking are simply no longer available to us, at least in, in, in large parts of the West, in that we no, live, no longer live in big industrial economies. Um, we no longer live in a time in which these kind of densely organized mass parties um, can arise out of a deeply, deeply atomized population. And that's where I say, like, yes, historically, it has been possible to transition from populism into socialism. But the cards are really stacked against us today, where a lot of people just stay stuck in populism simply because so many of those avenues have been shut off. How about alternately? Uh, are you familiar with the communization theory and notes and all that? Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> what do you what do you make of then um, the argument that similar to how you're anti anti populist, right? That in some sense you affirm the existence, or you we want to understand the reasons why these things rise, and we affirm them. Uh, how about the affirmation of all sorts of um, uncoordinated, disconnected, disparate, spontaneous movements around the world and understanding that as this beginning, this this process through which uh, communism produces itself. Are you sympathetic to that at all? Yeah, the strikes, the occupations, the blockades, you Mass know, the manifestations. riots turn into communism. Yeah. Don't forget the riots. Yeah. And he says, don't forget the riots, folks. <laughs> Um, I will say I'm just an empiricist on this issue in that I see where they're coming from. Theoretically, a lot of the analytical arguments make sense to me. But I think part of their part of the problem is simply, well, I'll, I'll wait to see the results of it. I mean, maybe one day there will be the degree of agency they they see as necessary to actually initiate that transition without an intermediate stage, because that seems to me the whole key argument about communization. Well, at the same time, and this is a problem that I've often seen in these accounts, is that their account of the 
fall of the old organized working class or the fall of organized socialism is often cast in sociological and not in political terms. So, for example, deindustrialization is just seen as a change from an industrial economy to a post-industrial economy, which basically brings a sort of new set of social coordinates with it. But I think you need to see deindustrialization in the late 20th century and the downfall of these organized labor parties, not just as a social change, but also as a political defeat. Mm. So it's precisely because these working classes were integrated into these capitalist states that they weren't able to put up any resistance when these economies re were restructured. And that basically created a fully proletarianized population, but that doesn't have the classical means of resistance and of coercion its disposal that were available in the 20th century, um, which depoliticized production to a very large degree, which means you have a lot of really intense class tension in contemporary economies, but it never crystallizes into any sort of organizational, organizationally durable organizations. And it could be that the communists are right and that some of this will eventually result in a sort of direct transition that doesn't need the intermediate stage. But I remain an empiricist and want to see whether that will actually happen one day. Well, it seems like you might have the reverse um, perspective um, from the, the Catalyst article that I mentioned previously. You, you thought that someone like Corbyn, like the, one, of, one of these populist leaders who, who gains momentum, can actually reorganize things from, from on top, whereas communization thinks that this comes more from everyday life, the day-to-day -day struggles instead of political mediation. So... Um, I mean, maybe this is this is just you writing uh, about populism and not your personal beliefs. But in terms of understanding populism as this sort of crisis of political mediation, I think communization sees m political mediation as a problem in itself. Definitely. And I think they're both responses to a problem of political mediation. So the communizers response is to say we don't need mediation in the first place, while the left populist response is to say we can shortcut mediation by imposing it from above and recreating all these organizational structures. And, and the way I frame those comments on Corbyn is basically by saying I want to take the populist hypothesis at its word. I want to see where it leads. It's very clear that in the case of Corbyn, Podemos and Bernie, it then didn't actually lead anywhere. Mm -hmm. But I have way more of a distrust towards some of these visions of spontaneity that are intrinsic to some of the communizer visions than I am to the organizational tendencies or the sort of semi-organizational tendencies you see in left populism. Because left populism, unfortunately, is quite leaderist, like it focuses quite heavily on the figure of the leader as this indispensable unifier for a movement, which I think just reproduces the problem of some of these spontaneous, spontaneous tendencies that think that you don't even need political mediation uh, to get the transition going. So here we are then. We are left with a whole bunch of questions at the uh, at the end of this episode. Um, Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> what would you like to uh, leave people with, Anton? What's like some final words about the stakes of populism for understanding populism for looking towards the future? And like, you know, maybe some news that people can use, because I feel like a lot of the time you listen to a podcast and you're like, oh, well, shit is fucked. What am I supposed to do about it? Yeah, I think the best defense of left populism I've heard, and this is a real travesty, I'm using this quote for it, but as a quote by Max Horkheimer, which I've often returned back to where he says, uh, I don't think that the world will turn out better, but you have to maintain the idea uh, that one day it might. So this is interesting mental tension between actually believing it will change and being able to actually hope that one day it will change. And I think this means that you have to keep all these different hypotheses in your head insofar as maybe left populism could work or maybe these other scenarios could work as well. 
Um, because I don't think doomerism, I mean, doomerism is always a sort of comfortable solution. Mm. Um, it's essentially aesthetic, and I don't think that kind of aestheticism has any place in politics. If you're serious about politics, you can't choose for an aesthetic option. That's a uh, great place to leave us at. Uh, Anton, thank you so much uh, for this. This is a wonderful podcast episode. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Folks, before we sign off, uh, just uh, note that uh, our podcast relies on you. Uh, if you are if you like our work and you want to hear more, we have a ton of bonus content. We also have a Discord server. We've got a ton of, um, whatchamacallit, what are those things we do where we send out the postcards and stuff? Yeah, we might uh, have another uh, sign-up bonus soon where you can yeah. get a postcard. But if you, if you are a, a Patreon subscriber, just send us a message and we'll definitely send you a postcard and some stickers. Hell yeah. Um, Hell yeah. And also we have a Twitch channel. Um, Anton, oh, yeah. do you Twitch, want to... Twitch.tv slash the Antifada. We stream uh, every Wednesday and Friday as well as other days sometimes. So if you subscribe, you'll get a nice little notification that pops up when we're doing it. And it's fun. You can hang out in the chat. You can talk to us. You call in. Sometimes we take calls. That's super fun. Uh, so definitely check that out. Um, also, I want to remind everyone that I have a new show called Everybody Loves Communism with my friend Aaron Thorpe, who you may know from the Trillbilly Workers Party. Uh, we just released part one of our third episode, which is on uh, State and Revolution by Lenin. So if you want to go deep on some communist theory, uh, visit fans.fm slash everybody loves communism or type in the name of the, of the podcast to any podcast app and it should pop up. Hell yeah. Anything to plug before we sign off, Anton? Um, no, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I tend to spend too much time on Twitter. So if people <laughs> want to see me, if people want to see me embarrass myself there, they can always do that. But I don't have anything else to plug. All right. We'll, we'll put that in the, in the show notes. And with that, folks, I am going to try the vegan lox cream cheese spread from Andy right now. Let's give it a try. <laughs> oh, that's actually kind of good. I'm pleasantly surprised by that. Food is such a wonder. It always continues to amaze me. Like, you generally have amazing food. There's no no denying about it. Better than Belgium, for sure. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Although we invented fries, so that's hard to talk. Sometimes with guns, sometimes with speeches, too. And also other things. One, two, three, four. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, yeah, yeah. Populism, It's the Earth.
Jackson.